We turn to Acts chapter 4. In Acts 3, Peter and John performed the miracle of the healing of the lame man, which they confessed was done only through the name of Jesus Christ. And now we have the account of them having been called before the rulers of the people and defending their actions. We read Acts chapter 4, the first 12 verses. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest And Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We read that far, especially that last verse in connection with the teaching of Lord's Day 11. Found in the back of our Psalters on page 8. Lord's Day 11, question and answers 29 and 30. Question 29, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, a Savior? Because he saveth us and delivereth us from all our sins. And likewise, because we ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in any other Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints of themselves or anywhere else? They do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true. Either that Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by true faith receive this Savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, having confessed the faith concerning God the Father, we now focus our attention on God the Son. We begin with the names of the Son of God. But directly, Jesus' names get at 
his person. They get at, therefore, who he is and what he did. Jesus' names define his work. And his names set forth the truth that he redeems us and he delivers us from all our sins as a wonder of grace. This Lord's Day witnesses to the heart of the gospel. And that's what we need to hear this morning. We need to hear that there is one name alone by which men, women, children might be saved. That salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. That he came into this world, very God and very man, and that he accomplished perfectly that which was necessary to save sinners. And that our salvation then is found in him alone. This confession and this witness has been sealed by blood by God's saints throughout the ages. The fathers insisted, many to their death, as martyrs, Jesus alone. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. And the emphasis throughout all ages and which continues to be a temptation for us is Jesus plus my effort, plus my works, plus something else. Not Jesus alone, but Jesus with some help. That's the temptation that has plagued the church through the ages and the temptation that continues to confront our own hearts. The language of the Lord's Day continues the confession of the apostles. The apostles from early on made clear, as we read here in Acts 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no other. Jesus Christ alone is Savior. They faced persecution. They faced hatred as a result. They were confronted by the authorities. They were told they had to stop. They could not preach about Jesus. They said, we must obey God rather than men. With thanksgiving in our hearts, we gather to confess with our minds and with our heart the glorious truth concerning salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And we confess that Jesus is my everything. The whole of my salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. Every single day I fail to love Him like I should. Every day I deny Him in my sin and my rebellion. But the power of His Spirit penetrates my soul so that I believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. And I confess, apart from Him, I would perish everlastingly. But through Jesus Christ, I know life, and I know salvation. The wonder of the gospel penetrates our hard hearts, brings us to our knees in confession of our sin, and works in us this glorious confession. Jesus, He is my Savior alone. We look at that this morning. Jesus Christ, my Savior. Noting, first of all, that He's my Savior from sin. Secondly, that He's my only Savior. And finally, that he's my complete Savior. God gave this name, Jesus, to his son by an angel. You children remember that history. Joseph found out that Mary was with child. He knew it could not be with him. And so he's concerned. What does he do with Mary? Does he put her away? An angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, don't put her away. 
the child that she's pregnant with is of the Holy Spirit. It's a marvelous wonder. It's a miracle. And proceeds then to tell him this will be his name. You will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. That's Matthew 1, verse 21, and Luke 1, verse 31. This name chosen by God for Jesus long before he was born. And this name chosen because it identifies something very important about the Son of God. He is Jehovah Salvation. That's what Jesus literally means. Jehovah Salvation. We've seen in the Catechism, our Savior needs to be very God. This emphasizes this child is Jehovah. This child is very God. And this child is the one through whom there is full salvation. The name then describing the very essence and the work of this child. So that from the very beginning, it was evident the wonder of God in preserving and keeping covenant and bringing salvation through this one. God's covenant would be realized. God's covenant would be brought to its completion through this one, Jesus. And so the name describes the purpose for which he came. He shall save his people from their sins. He's not going to save the whole world. He's going to save his people. He's going to save them. He doesn't just come to make salvation possible. He actually accomplishes it. And he comes to save from sin. Not from earthly troubles and difficulties. He saves from sin. And so by faith, we discern the meaning, the significance of this name. And we also call him Jesus. The Son of God is Jesus. He is Jehovah Salvation. And we make it personal. He is my Jehovah Salvation. He is my Savior who stood in my place and delivered me from all my sins. This name reveals the wonder of wonders that is mine in knowing that though I'm a sinner, I have a Savior. And beloved, coming to know the name of Jesus, we understand His work. We understand all of the various aspects of His work. And we stand in awe. We find true comfort. We find true peace. This is the name that we love, the name that we worship, the name that we adore. And by worshiping and adoring the name, we worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as our Lord and Savior. I confess that the Son of God is Jesus, my Jehovah, salvation. And the Catechism elaborates. He saves and delivers us from our sin. The scriptures in the catechism are clear on this. What is our greatest need? Our need is for a Savior who delivers from sin. That's the need that we have. The cause of man's misery lies within himself. And the cause of man's misery is sin. Our sinful, willful disobedience against God is what brings about death. Psalm 73, we sing, to live apart from God is death. And why is it? It's because we're living apart from God. We're living in the way of sin. The beginning of life for every man, woman, and child is stained with the guilt, the pollution of sin. And every single day, apart from grace, we by our sinfulness dig the grave 
of our distress and our death deeper and deeper. We're reminded again of the true picture of our being. What is our great need? Our great need is for Savior from sin. Our misery is not just that this life has so many problems and that there's so many struggles in life. Our misery is my sin. And the reality of that judgment that is upon God because of sin. Who can turn that darkness into light? Who's able to take that sin and remove it from us and pay the penalty that we deserve? Jesus Christ, the Son of God alone. And so the emphasis of Scripture in the Catechism is that He does so thoroughly. He does so completely. Jesus Christ was sent by God to fully accomplish the wonder of salvation for all those whom the Father gave Him. And the result then is that the guilt of sin is removed so that it does no longer condemn us. The pollution of sin is removed so that we are strengthened now to do the will of our Heavenly Father. Jesus taking upon Himself the full wrath of God for that sin. And it was only possible because of the virgin birth and the fact that His person was the second person of the Godhead. We've established all that in preceding Lord's Days. The Son of God, very God and very man. God so that He could maintain that perfect obedience and take upon Himself the punishment we deserve. Very man so that He could represent us and stand in our place. And He freed us. He freed us from death. No longer does the power of sin and death reign over us. We're now united to Christ by a true and living faith. And united to Christ, having the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we now know highest bliss. We know the joy of salvation. We know life. A life that's everlasting. Peter and John demonstrated that when they came to the beggar here in the temple in Acts 3. God had sent them to this man who was withering away. There was nothing Peter and John could do for this man. They didn't have the cure. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man was freed from physical, not only, but spiritual death. He was given not only to rise up and now walk, but he was given to know that his sins had been forgiven. And Peter and John make clear, all the credit goes to Jesus. We couldn't do this. We didn't accomplish this. This is the work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He delivered this man from the bondage, not only physically that he experienced, but from spiritual bondage. To be saved from sin means liberty. This is the freedom that is ours. What makes us unholy, unhappy, miserable, is sin. And all the consequences of sin. Everything else in our lives is minor compared to sin and the consequences of sin. Sin eats away at the most beautiful of relationships. It eats away at our walk with God, our relationship with Jesus Christ. Other ailments may come and go, but that sin cleaves to my nature. Nothing is able to shake it off. We have a Savior who saved us from that sin. And the result is that we have true joy, true freedom. The bondage of sin and death is broken. And now we are at liberty to live unto God and to live for His glory. Jesus holds the reins of our life, not the devil. 
And we're no longer under slavery to the devil. We're free and most blessed under the rule of Jesus Christ. Freed from sin and its power. He is our only Savior. What a wonderful salvation, beloved, we have. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, is the confession we made in Lord's Day 1, who has fully paid for all my sins and who now preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. This Savior has performed such a great work that there's no need for any other Savior. He's removed the cause of misery, sin. There are saints in heaven, but they can't commend us before God. They can't help us. They can't merit anything for us. There are angels in heaven, but those angels are not able to add anything to the work of the Son of God. God-fearing relatives, God-fearing friends, they can't save us to any higher degree than that which Jesus has accomplished. We can do wonderful things now by the Spirit working in our heart. But those works in no way are the basis of my salvation. I can do works worthy of praise, of honor, but none of them can earn anything before God. All of that is the fruit of His grace and His salvation toward me. The world has been flooded with so-called saviors, people that desire to bring relief to men and women, but they cannot save from sin. They try to save from common misery. They claim they can save from poverty. They can save by certain disease, from certain diseases by finding the cure for those diseases. And so they can make earthly comforts. They can cause sickness and poverty to increasingly go away. They seek to make the world a better place, but they're not concerned about individuals being reconciled with God. And that's the greatest need of men and women. By the way, beloved, this is the way we'll be able to identify the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to come, and we see his spirit already in the world today, trying to save mankind from all kinds of things. But he won't speak of sin. He won't speak of reconciliation with God. Everything's going to be man-centered. It's going to be focused on how man will be more comfortable, how man's life will be better to a greater degree. Such saviors are no savior. Jesus Christ is the one through whom alone there is salvation from sin. And that's our great need. That's the source of our misery. Now it's for that reason to emphasize that he is our only Savior that the fathers added question 30 to Lord's Day 11. God's people had been set free from the slavery of sin and guilt with the glorious gospel that's set forth in question and answer 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is a Savior? Because He saveth us and deliver us from all our sins, and likewise because we ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in any other. What a wondrous gospel. Jesus is Savior. He's taken away all of our sins. He's the one through whom alone we find our salvation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. It's not money. It's not performing masses on your account. It's not good works that save. 
It's not doing the rosary. It's Jesus Christ alone. Now, this was necessary, especially in the realm of the influence of the Roman Catholics. The elector of the Palatinate, Palatinate, who instructed Caspar Livianus and Zacharias Ursinus to write the Heidelberg Catechism, wanted all the people in his county to hear and to know and to believe this precious truth. So that they would give all glory to God and so that they would know the comfort of their salvation. So that they would have a sense of well-being and peace in the midst of all the daily struggles of life. He wanted them to know this truth. The heart of your misery is your sin. And that's been removed. Jesus Christ has taken it all. And so Caspar Livianus and, Je- and Zacharias or Sinus wrote question answer 29 in the catechism as the elector desired. But they wrote more. They added question and answer 30. And so we ask ourselves, why? Why did they add question and answer 30? And it's because the matter of how one glorifies God to the fullest degree and receives a sense of peace in this life had to be spelled out in very explicit detail. The people of the Palatinate had for so long been caught up in the ungodly leaven of Roman Catholicism. And for years and for generations, they'd been fed then the fact that their works were the ground in part of their salvation. That salvation was through Jesus plus something or someone else. And so the gospel had to be more specifically focused. It's Jesus Christ alone. Superstition was still living within them. A superstitious idea that God's favor is going to be granted me by somehow my appealing to the saints or by my good works or by working more diligently or sacrificing more. And so this superstitious spirit had to be addressed. If Jesus is Savior and if he delivers from sin and all its consequences, what implication does that gospel have now For someone who thinks they have to look to their own works. Or for someone who thinks that they need to do the rosary. Or that they have to somehow pursue masses or something else. Is there room for both? In practice, the people thought, yes. I can believe in Jesus and I can still live in this other way where I'm still covering, so to speak, all of my various bases. Therefore, question 30 was added to clearly say, no, there is no more place. And beloved, we need to hear this as well. Ingrained in our nature is that desire to do something and to look to ourselves in pride. In other words, my salvation is through Christ, but also the good decisions I made in the past with regard to joining this church, with regard to training my children faithfully, with regard to all of the things I've done, the money I've given, Jesus plus me. And the catechism comes forcibly on the basis of Scripture. No! It's Jesus alone. And so not only did the people of the Palatinate receive a clear no through question answer 30, but we do as well. And the Lord's Day is insistent. Anyone who seeks his temporal or eternal well-being through anything other than Christ 
does not really believe in Jesus Christ alone. If you're thinking that you can be saved in some other way yet, if you're thinking that, well, of course I need Jesus, I'm not denying that, but also my good works, or also these things are necessary, then there's problems. You're not living and confessing Jesus Christ alone. And beloved, this simply is the teaching of Scripture. Paul faulted the Galatian saints who believed in Jesus. There's no doubt that the Galatian saints believed in Jesus. But he faulted them for thinking that they had to do a certain particular group of works in order to gain God's favor. And he said, you have fallen from grace. It's not about work. It's all of grace. It's all in Jesus Christ. And if you say Jesus plus my works, you deny Jesus as the only Savior. It's that simple, beloved. The implication of confessing, question answer 29, is that I do not seek to make God happy through anything that I do. I don't try to obtain a sense of favor on the basis of anything of myself. I don't try to get God's divine favor based on me or something that I've accomplished. If somehow I don't find in Christ everything necessary for my salvation, both now and to all eternity, I in fact deny Jesus as Savior. I remain stuck in my sin. I remain caught up then in captivity. I'm still living under the load of God's wrath upon me for sin. And then I don't face heaven. I face the horror of hell. And the calling then is repent. Lay hold on Christ alone as Savior. In love, God is constantly cutting us off from those idols that we would establish in our lives. We put our trust in our strength, and so God takes from us our strength. We put our trust in our parents. God takes from us our parents. We put our trust in our possessions. God takes from us our possessions. They flee away. God constantly having to remind us, your strength, your salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. Look to Him alone. The blood of the Lamb has atoned for sin. And by faith, we believe that Jesus alone is our Savior. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Jesus Christ, our only Savior. And as only Savior then, he's our complete Savior that follows. He's called Jesus because he saves and delivers us. The name Jesus always has been under fierce attack. Today, the name Jesus is under fierce attack. The revelation concerning the Messiah, under fierce attack. And the question is this, is Jesus a complete Savior or does he need help? Does Jesus, Jehovah's salvation, have the power alone to save or not? Historically, there's been a great attack on the name Jesus. And for a minute few moments, we want to trace that historical attack. During the time of Augustine in the 3rd and 4th centuries, there was a man, Pelagius. And Pelagius denied that Jesus was a complete Savior. He insisted man has a free will. 
And man's will is important with regard to accomplishing salvation. And so salvation is not Jesus alone, it's man and man exercising the freedom of his will. He taught Jesus intended to save all men. All men are not totally depraved, according to Pelagius. They're not worthy of death. But they're neutral. And everybody then is born neutral. And he's able to do good. And he has a free will that's able to do good. We don't need grace. We merely need to follow Jesus' example. And so natural man seeks God. He's able to be saved by his own free will, by walking in a way that's good and then making a decision by which he then decides for Christ. Whether or not then a man is saved or not is up to that man. It's up to that individual. It's up to his free will and good works. Pelagius denied there was any election of God. He said there's no such thing as God electing anyone. Everything is according to the will and the ability of man. Augustine did battle against Pelagius. And we read Augustine's writings, and Augustine lays out clearly the truth of the Bible over against Pelagius. The church councils met, and they stood with Augustine, defending Augustine, who insisted salvation is through Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone. And Pelagius' position was condemned strongly. Pelagius denies that there's even need for a Savior by denying that Jesus is the only Savior. Pelagius, though he talked a lot about Jesus, in essence, denied Jesus. After Pelagius, semi-Pelagianism arose in the church world. Semi meaning sort of like. It's a modification of it. And really what it was was a bit of a more Christianized version of Pelagianism. And so they asserted a need for God. They asserted a need for grace into the equation. And it was just a more subtle, cloaked, with a little bit more of a religious perspective. They said man is weak. A child that's born is diseased. He's not totally depraved though. But he's diseased. He's weak. Baptism is the means by which that weakness, that disease is washed away. And now that child becomes a clean slate, like Pelagius taught. After baptism, original pollution, original guilt is all erased. And now that child then just has to confess actual sins to a priest as he commits them. And in that way is able to overcome the power of sin in his or her life. And so salvation is according to God's grace... And it's shown in baptism, but it's still dependent on the free will of man. It's still dependent on man's works. And so you need both for salvation. Grace plus works. Grace plus one's free will. Grace plus the worship of Mary, the worship of saints, rosary beads, masses, and all the rest. Man and God are cooperating in salvation. And salvation begins then, ultimately, with man and man's will yet. So we ask the question, is Jesus complete Savior in semi-Pelagianism? No, he is not. He's part of the equation, but he needs help. And again, that's a denial then of Jesus Christ as Savior. It's a denial of Matthew one twenty one. His name 
shall be Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This became the official position of the Roman Catholic Church, and it is still today, semi-Pelagianism. Church councils again met, condemned semi-Pelagianism as error, insisted on total depravity, on the doctrine of election, and on the wonder of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. In the late 1500s, a similar heresy again rose in the Reformed churches in Europe. Arminianism. Jacob Arminius began to teach something similar. Now we understand Arminianism, and it's important to understand it clearly so that we don't misrepresent it. In many cases, it's a resurrection of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, but with an attempt to give it still a bit more biblical flavor. Man is depraved, they say, but his depravity does not extend to his whole being. They would try to make the distinction he's totally depraved, yes, but not absolutely depraved, in the sense that he still has a little bit of good in him in some places. Analogies they would use is he's really, really sick. All he can do is believe. He can't do anything that's good. But yet, here's the question we ask. Is man dead? And their answer is no. He's still got a little bit of life in him. Pollution is passed to the whole human nature. That pollution is not sin in the proper sense, but it's a weakening of man so that man is not capable of eternal life. But there's a freedom in man yet to seek after and to do good and to turn from God so that especially his will is yet able to make a choice for God. And so the Arminian teaches Jesus died for all. He obtained reconciliation, salvation for all men. But did he pay the price so that every single one of those people actually are delivered from sin and go to heaven? No. And so then we conclude, Jesus didn't die for all then. He merely tried to die for all. He merely made salvation possible for all. But he actually didn't accomplish it for anyone then. Because it's still up to man. Is there a decree of God? They say, yes, there is election. And one reads them. And again, very subtle. But what what do we find out? Election is conditional. God's election is merely a matter of God looking ahead and saying, I see that these people are going to do good, that they're going to accept Jesus, they're going to live in a godly way, therefore I'm going to pick them. And so salvation now is not all of God, it's of God looking ahead and making that judgment based on man. Why did God choose some and not others? Because God saw that some would obey, some would persevere. And so now salvation is dependent on man. God's decree of election then, as pious as they talk about it, is established on the foundation of the work of man. The canons of Dort address this. The canons of Dort and the rejection of heirs reject the heirs of those who teach that Jesus is not the complete Savior, that he merely made salvation possible. That's found on the handout that was given. So that the canons of Dort clearly addressed this error of Arminianism and condemned it. The Arminian makes Jesus willing and eager to save all, but powerless to save any specific individual. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. 
The Jesus of the Bible emphatically saves and delivers, and he's not dependent on the will of man. The Jesus of the Bible has the power to save by turning the very will of man to himself. And salvation is all of God. It's not conditional election, but unconditional election. God choosing to himself a people apart from anything of themselves and then working the wonder in their hearts by which they believe and repent. The canons of Dort and the synod of Dort was the gift from God to the church of victory over that error. But then in more recent times, the error of a conditional covenant of common grace have risen their head within Reformed churches. A conditional covenant teaches that the promise of God concerning salvation is given to every baptized child. Some even go so far as to say that every baptized child is in Christ, has the sap of Christ running through him. But that person's not saved, though, until he still has to do something. He still has to make some kind of decision. He still has to accept the promise or do something that will make that promise effectual. Really, that's no different than conditional election or salvation. The only difference is the pool is a bit smaller because now instead of the pool being all men, it's all those who are baptized. But salvation is still conditional now. It's conditional upon man who's been baptized now doing something as he gets older. Christ, then, is not a complete Savior. This is, we call it, Arminianism injected into the covenant. So that now the covenant is dependent upon man and man's will. Our churches condemned that error and insisted the covenant is unconditional. God is the one alone who establishes covenant and preserves covenant with his people. And God's covenant promises to believers and their seed but not in the sense that it's to every child head for head. It's to all those who are in Christ. Just as the promise was not to Israel head for head, but to those who were Israel according to the promise. Common grace teaches that natural man can do some civil good in God's eyes and that God shows his grace and his love to all men. That man is not totally to pray. Common grace teaches there's some good still, a little bit of good yet, in man. And it becomes especially serious when it teaches that God has a desire to save more than he's elected. And that would be the well-met offer of the gospel. They insist that God has a desire to save everybody who comes under the preaching. We understand, even you young people can understand, there's a problem here. If God, according to sovereign election, determines only to save to himself a certain people, but at the same time he wants to save everybody who comes under the preaching, what's right? So now we have confusion in God. We have a contradiction in God. And they try to overcome that by insisting that God has two separate wills and that those wills are contrary one to another. But none of that is faithful to Scripture. Scripture teaches God has one will. God will save those whom he desires. If God wants to save all who come under the preaching, God will do it. Because our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Ultimately then, why does God save some and why are others not saved? 
Ultimately, the reason is dependent on man. God gives grace to everybody who comes under the preaching, and those who respond to that grace appropriately are saved. So now we have other problems. Grace now is resistible, whereas the Bible teaches clearly irresistible grace. When God gives his grace, and when he works that grace, he draws his people to himself. And though they can attempt to resist, no one can effectually resist God's power and God's grace. And so man is saved by grace, through faith, through Jesus Christ, but he still needs to do something apart from Christ for his salvation. He needs help. Again, beloved, we've, as churches, rejected that interpretation of God's grace. And we confess he is called Jesus because he saves and delivers from sin. He is an all-powerful Savior. As an all-powerful Savior, he is complete Savior. He saves everyone whom he desires. And Jesus made that clear throughout his ministry. He talks about his sheep in John 10. In John 6, he says, I will draw to myself every last one of those for whom I died. None will be lost. Matthew one twenty one. he shall save his people from their sins. Christ's sheep hear his voice and he delivers them. And he is a complete savior. Jesus alone has accomplished everything that's necessary for our salvation. He knows our foolishness. He knows our rebellion. He knows our sorrows, our fears. He knows our tears. He knows the load that we bear. He takes it upon himself. And he delivers us completely from the burden of sin and guilt. And he works in our hearts the joy and wonder of it. He works in us the confession of our sin. He works in us the desire to walk in obedience unto him. He works in us the thankfulness that we owe unto him. Beloved, Jesus demonstrates the completeness of his salvation in and through us. He abides with us by his Holy Spirit. And he produces his works in our lives. What's the practical significance of that? Why is it that the old saint is preserved his or her whole life long? Why is it that you and I can be confident that although we are terrible sinners and although we transgress God's commandments daily, we are going to heaven? Why can we be confident that that loved one that we buried last week or last month is in heaven with the Lord. Not because I maintain my faith. Not because I'm so faithful. Not because our loved one was so diligent. Not because we do something to keep ourselves in the faith. Great is thy faithfulness. All the credit goes to God and the wonder of His grace in our lives. The fact that He gave us a Savior. That that Savior lives within us by His Spirit. That's our only comfort. That's our only hope. That's our only preservation. We give all glory to God and the power of Jesus Christ who has saved and delivered us and who will preserve us to all eternity. Our salvation is all of Christ. And anything else is going to result in constant fear and terror. Did I do enough? Was I faithful enough? Are my friends, my family, those upon whom whom I depend, are they faithful enough? Why is it, beloved, that we are motivated to live thankful lives before God? 
Because God gives us to know by His Spirit that we are saved. We are delivered through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we now have the liberty now to live unto God and to show forth His praise. Your life is not about trying to save yourself. You've been saved. And now your life is about thanking God, living unto Him, showing forth His praise, crying out. We need thee every hour. And He works in us the humility, the sorrow for sin, by which we acknowledge all things come from His fatherly hand alone. Beloved, by God's grace, we have that blessed assurance. God works faith in our hearts. And that faith confirms that the work that He has begun within me, He will bring to its completion in glory. And that it's not of Him that wills, who desires to believe. It's not of Him that runs, who's busy in good works, but of God that shows mercy. Romans 9, verse 16. And so, beloved, our confession is this. Jesus is everything to me. Jesus is my Savior. He's everything to me. Although so often I fail to love Him as I ought. Every day I deny Him in my sin and my rebellion. Though I make idols of my money, my possessions, my relationships. By the power of His Spirit, He penetrates my soul, brings me to my knees, and works in me this glorious confession. He alone is my Savior. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank and praise Thee for the wonder of Thy goodness toward us. We thank Thee for Thy Spirit preserving and defending the truth throughout the ages. We thank Thee for the confessions written in the blood of saints. And work in us the joy and confession concerning Jesus Christ as our alone Savior. And may we live out of the hope and the joy that's found in Him, knowing and believing that our salvation is secure, that it is hid with Christ, and that we are the recipients of a glorious and wondrous hope. Amen.